Okay, welcome to episode nine of Why Is This Good by the Naples Writers Workshop in Naples, Florida. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John and Rob. Hello. Hey. All right, and this story is one that John picked, so John, tell us what you chose for us. All right, so I figured doing this podcast, uh, we would eventually have to do Raymond Carver, his giant and short stories. So I figured why why not get it out of the way, and I picked picked his story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, which is... You know, anthologized everywhere, so... All right, and you're going to read the from the beginning? Yeah, just a little bit in the beginning. Sure. My friend Mel McGinnis was talking. Mel McGinnis is a cardiologist, and sometimes that gives him the right. The four of us were sitting around his kitchen table drinking gin. Sunlight filled the kitchen from the big window behind the sink. There were Mel and me, and his second wife, Teresa. Terry, we called her. And my wife, Laura. We lived in Albuquerque then, but we were all from somewhere else. There was an ice bucket on the table. The gin and the tonic water kept going around, and we somehow got on the subject of love. Mel thought real love was nothing less than spiritual love. He said he'd spent five years in a seminary before quitting to go to medical school. He said he still looked back on those years in the seminary as the most important years in his life. Terry said the man she lived with before she lived with Mel loved her so much he tried to kill her. Then Terry said, He beat me up one night. He dragged me around the living room by my ankles. He kept saying, I love you. I love you, you bitch. He went on dragging me around the living room. My head kept knocking on things. Terry looked around the table. What do you do with a love like that? She was a bone-thin woman with a pretty face, dark eyes, and brown hair that hung down her back. She liked necklaces made of turquoise and long pendant earrings. My God, don't be silly. That's not love, and you know it, Mel said. I don't know what you'd call it, but I sure know you wouldn't call it love. Say what you want to, but I know it was, Terry said. It may sound crazy to you, but it's true just the same. People are different, Mel. Sure, sometimes he may have acted crazy. Okay, but he loved me. In his own way, maybe, but he loved me. There was love there, Mel. Don't say there wasn't. Mel let out his breath. He held his glass and turned to Laura and me. The man threatened to kill me, Mel said. He finished his drink and reached for the gin bottle. Terry's a romantic. Terry's of the kick-me-so-I-know-you-love-me school. Terry, hun, don't look that way. Mel reached across the table and touched Terry's cheek with his fingers. He grinned at her. Now he wants to make up, Terry said. Make up what, Mel said. What is there to make up? I know what I know. That's all. All right. So you picked this because we have to talk about Raymond Carver, but why'd you pick this one? Well, this one, um, I, uh, I, I, it's driven by dialogue. And um, there's actually a story that I, I'm, I have in my drawer that I want to revise that's driven by dialogue. So I thought, hey, why not? Good practice. Yeah. <laughs> think about dialogue for a little while. I thought, you know, I don't think we've talked about a lot of dialogue stuff or a story that's a lot of dialogue. It might be interesting that way. Right. Yeah. Um, I read this just once for to prepare and I forgot that the intro was even there because it, it really does launch into it from, from that point. As soon as they start talking, they don't really stop. There's only like one or two bits and pieces throughout where they mention what's happening around them. And it's mostly related to like the time, the time of day slipping by. It's really jarring to see uh, people getting really drunk in their sunlight, like blasting. Like you never see that when people are drinking. That was, uh, yeah, he really sets... He, it seems like he doesn't go out of his way to set lo- the low class setting, but he just, and, and obviously in his stuff, stuff occurs naturally because that's what he does, I, I guess. But he does it, he usually, whatever he's doing as far as setting, do, um, establishing the setting, he always does it quickly. Like you can feel like the squalor immediately. And whether that's because like his, his language has such economy to it or because he's such a great, um, scene setter where it's like we're sitting on the table, there's sunlight, there's gin, and you're just like, you're getting all this information. It's like, it's, it's a great way to stress it up. 
And he does it so quickly. There was a couple weird places too where um, I marked it. Okay, so like at the bottom of 173, there, Laura says something. And it's, it's not the first time she's spoken, I don't think. Or maybe it is the first time and that's why this is here. No, it's not. Okay. But he says, Laura says, it sounds like a nightmare, Laura said, but what exactly happened after he shot himself? And then he's, Raymond Carver says, Laura is a legal secretary. <laughs> We'd met in a professional capacity. Before we knew it, it was a courtship. She's 35, three years younger than I am. In addition to being in love, we like each other and enjoy one another's company. She is easy to be with. And then there's this break and like the conversation goes back. I thought like that was the only place where it felt like abrupt, but I think Rob's right. Like he's doing these things kind of quickly and we don't need to know much else other than that about Laura to appreciate, you know, what she has to say on the, on the topic. Oh, I mean, in the section I read when uh, Terry was started talking she in, he interrupts the conversation by saying she was a bone thin woman with a pretty face, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, she liked necklaces made of turquoise and long pendant earrings. So just like this brief little flash of here's uh, my quick description of the character. Right. Uh, now back to the dialogue. I think it's the same way for that. For yours. I think he does that. Obviously he introduces um, Mel in the opening. Yeah. Well, it sounds mostly because Mel's the one that brings him to the topic, kind of. He's the first to talk. But it's just that, that those little just flash of, this is who this person is, and then I go on. Oh, no, he does it on 172. Mel says, poor Ed nothing, Mel said. He was dangerous. Next paragraph. Mel was 45 <laughs> years old. He was tall and rangy with curly, soft hair. His face and arms were brown with... Uh, his face and arms were brown from the tennis he played. When he was sober, his gestures, all his movements were precise, very careful. So I think there's, and there's probably, there's one, there was a one for Terry, there's a one for Lori pointed out, there's probably one for the narrator somewhere that I don't have marked right here. But uh, yeah, so that just kind of stuck in there for each of those characters, it seems mm -hmm. like. I mean, they're, I guess, important, but I felt like I learned more about the characters in the dialogue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, like, the, the one about Mel, when he was sober, Right. His gestures were precise, very careful. Yeah. Like the rest of the story is just him getting drunker Drunkery. and drunker, <laughs> getting sloppier and sloppier. So it's kind of setting up that, that um, tension. I thought, um, I guess before we talk about like the mechanics of this dialogue and why it's done well, I thought it was interesting that uh, four friends, you know, two couples would talk about something this intimate, like for this long. Like it tells you, I think, a lot about them as friends, that they're willing to like touch the subject. Oh, yeah. And they clearly don't agree, but it's not, it's still like kind of lighthearted. I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. I couldn't picture the three friends that I would sit down with and say, let's talk about types of love. No, not in the middle of the day. Yeah. In the kitchen. No, I mean, yeah, the gym helps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, why do you think the dialogue works so well? It's interesting that it matches the prose perfectly. I mean, you could put quotation marks around the prose and there'd be probably no difference. And you see that, obviously, that kind of happens a lot, but I don't know. I think it can both serve and detract from your stuff. I guess it's just, it just depends on what you're doing. This obviously seems to work. But sometimes if I'm writing something and like someone will speak such a specific way that it's like, wait, this doesn't, and it's not something I'm like trying to guard against or have any control over, but it's just something that's interesting that um, it's just something to either, yeah, I guess it, it could be a deterrent in your stuff if it gets out of control. I don't know. Maybe it works because it's first person and he's partaking in the conversation. Mm -hmm. That like he would describe things the way that his friends are talking versus like if this was a third person narrator. But yeah, it's all the same kind of mood. Mm -hmm. I think the di like the the conflict of the story is the is the different ways that the characters think about these things. And you you know in the first section, Mel and Terry are disagreeing about Ed, right? And yeah. so. The conflict arises in the way they're talking, right? 
like how they're talking to each other. How they're talking to each other, how they're interpreting what Ed did, how they're characterizing that situation. And, uh, you know, the segment right where I ended, it's um, Mel's saying all these things about uh, about Terry. And then he says, Terry, hun, don't look that way, which he doesn't break into the dialogue that, or Carver doesn't break into the dialogue to say Terry got a funny look on her face or Terry frowned or looked away or whatever it was. Mel just reacted to it in the moment in dialogue. And we got a sense that, okay, she must have made a face. Yeah. And then she responded, you know, he read, Mel reached across the table and touched Terry's cheek with his fingers. He grinned at her. She says, now he wants to make up. So we're getting those little, you know, interaction of the couple in that way. And there's another one on uh, 173 where uh, he says, um, Mel said, uh, he took, he took this 22 pistol he bought to threaten Terry me with. Oh, I'm serious. The man was always threatening. The, oh, I'm serious seems to be a reaction to something that just happened in the room. Somebody made a face, somebody made a gesture, something like that. And so those little moments in the dialogue give us a sense of what's happening in the room. We talked about dialogue recently in our teen workshop, and I think we've talked about it in our regular workshop too, but authentic dialogue is written the way we talk, where you ramble, you talk for too long, or you interrupt each other, or you don't like complete full thoughts, and you're not necessarily always articulate, or at least people don't understand what you're trying to say. And I think um, sometimes like the danger is that we write characters that speak too precisely or too almost like poetically. Or answer each other precisely. Yeah, the, or, or say what they mean. We talked about that too, like characters saying what they mean versus like implying something or hoping that you read into the context or lying even but um i don't know if you guys have ever seen a movie that's just too over the top that way like sometimes you can guess the lines that are gonna come out of characters mouths like down to the word and that's when you know it's probably not authentic or it's like these are just perfect characters but i mean yeah just an example for the point Uh you're making 17273 uh so near the end of 172 terry says it gets worse it gets worse terry said he shot himself in the mouth but he bungled that too and then she and Mel go on to have a little exchange, right? That leads away from that idea of bungling. But then the narrator comes in and says, what do you mean he bungled it? I said, and nobody answers him for the next paragraph. There's no. So then he has to come back and say, how did he bungled it when he killed himself? I said, you know, he's repeating himself. He's insisting. I want to talk about this. And then Mel comes back. I'll tell you what happened. He doesn't really answer. No. All right, there. It takes a lot of insisting, and the story has to unravel a little bit before we find out what the actual bungle was. But um, that's, you know, to your point about dialogue that where people aren't actually talking to each other, they're talking past each other in a lot of ways mm. and, and not really understanding when they're not hearing each other, they're just saying what they want to say, not necessarily having being engrossed in the conversation the way right. ordinary people do. Yeah, that's what. Like, this feels like a very honest conversation. That's why I think what's interesting, but it's not overdone in the sense that everybody says what they mean off the bat and concisely. They don't, like, go around the table saying, this is what I feel about true love. It's like they come to a conclusion by the end, each of them, in just kind of talking at each other, and I think the gin helps. And it reminds me of um, uh, The Sun Also Rises rises by Ernest Hemingway, which just feels like a long conversation, the whole book. And it's always, like, an ensemble of characters, usually. There's, like, three people or four people hanging out, and there's always alcohol. And I think there's something interesting in um, these these like kind of subtle revelations seem like ones that need to happen for a character internally. But I think this is a way that it's drawn out for the reader in particular. I don't think that you can read this and think that, Oh, 
Terry concluded this about true love, but I think you can read the entirety of it and it coalesces to something for you, the reader. Like it's watching people struggle with something on the page in dialogue versus a first person character struggling internally and then like saying, and this is my conclusion about life. Like how boring, but to watch people talk about it's really interesting or to argue even. Yeah. The characters don't need to have a revelation for the story to present one to us. As yeah. Writers. Because I, I think, um, they're kind of oblivious to it themselves. I don't even know if Mel's going to remember this conversation in the morning. But what he's <laughs> saying right. is, like, impacting me. Yeah. It does sound like Hemingway. And it does sound like like this could be an updated, like, symposium. Like, a, um, one of Plato's. Like, people are just sitting around. It's <laughs> yeah. a discussion. And they're drinking. And it's like, that's the occasion. It's interesting to see that updated, you know, thousands of years later. Because it's, I think you can make a really good argument that that's what it is. It's, it's like a treatise on love. In 19, you know, what, 70, whenever either, whenever this is set. And it's still dramatic. That's like the thing. Like, it's not like, it's a, it's not a philosophical paper. It's a dramatic, it's drama. Yeah. I I was, John Gardner called uh, fiction concrete philosophy. Uh We learn about, we do philosophy by, by pursuing concrete action. What characters do in interaction with one another that tells us about ourselves. Yeah, there, there you have it. It does sound like Hemingway too. Just the the rhythm, uh, just the sentences look like Hemingway. Right, oh, yeah, like sure. maybe it's the women too. Like they always seem like on the fringe of like a breakdown, but they never do. <laughs> They're always like, "Well, what do you mean, honey?" And then they just like gloss over the feeling over and over. like I don't know. It's like Lady Brett, I think, is her name. Oh yeah, Mel tries to control Terry a lot, and she, but she just she she seems like unabashed or like not. She doesn't notice that he's also kind of a dick. Yeah, but she also doesn't necessarily let him control. No, she's just like in her own world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did not like the way he was talking to her. <laughs> well, yeah. He's a drunk surgeon and he's telling her her first husband was shitty and she's just like, oh, stop it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's part of um, irony or something in this is yeah. uh, they're talking about love and how much they love one another. And as a reader, you're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Right. I wonder if like this would be as as popular now as it was whenever it debuted. I think the this seems so much different. Well, I think it's like you said. I think this could be easily updated to like mm-hmm. hipsters drinking. Yeah, and it wouldn't be hard either. Probably no. would it? You had a few iPhone scenes. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think she poured the last of the gin into her glass and waggled the bottle. Uh, Mel got up from the table and went to the cupboard. He took down another bottle. I think you keep that paragraph. People do that with empty <laughs> bottles, right? Yeah, waggle them. <laughs> Yeah. Gross. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> well, Rob talked about drinking being the occasion, which is interesting because it was how we set the scene. But I think it works in another way, which is like almost a stereotype. Like we know how drinking goes when that's the plan, right? You get progressively drunk until you have to end the night somehow. And so it, it also gives the story this kind of arc where even if you don't know where the conversation's going to land, like you, you, you know what it's going to ultimately climax to. Like you, you feel Mel like, coming unhinged almost or like he's about to call his kids and you're like bad idea but that also feels like where it's like building and building and building and and i think the alcohol is what you know we talk about like making things more difficult for your characters it's making it harder for him to express himself he's he's about to make a bad choice he's probably saying things he's gonna regret like it's not just um i don't know sometimes i feel like when people make their characters drink it's like i've read this story a million times like oh we're at a bar we're drinking and we're talking about life and it's just like oh who cares you're not that um poetic or thoughtful but for this i think it really sets a uh trajectory especially with this deadline of dinner they're like we gotta go to dinner and you're like something tells me no one can drive i am the story i was talking about i brought it to the workshop last year and uh i had 
two scenes where two characters were interacting at a bar. And the first one, they're like mostly normal. They're drinking a little. And the second one, I was trying to convey without saying it that the, the guy was pretty drunk. But nobody at the workshop picked up on it. Nobody said anything. The guy who was the main character? No, the, um, the, the, the main character was talking to him. Oh, uh, yeah. He seemed drunk. I think I remember what you talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I was trying to convey, just without saying it, just through the way he was talking to her. Right. But um, since nobody said anything about it, I was really a little concerned. Like, maybe I didn't achieve that. It could be just, like, that you did your job and people just went just, with it. Yeah, it could have been that, too, yeah. But so I thought this was really interesting the way in which that's conveyed. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to read um, a story by someone who so obs- or always has like drinking or always has you know some kind of not the drinking a motif that, that uh, necessarily it's kind of a plot driver just a setting at least. So to see somebody who's always caught up like doing the same thing, it's kind of interesting. It's like looking at a painter stuff who just paints the same thing over and over again, <laughs> and it's fun to see uh, try to figure out why they do it. That sounds boring. I think it's it's also like alcohol is a way to get characters together. Indeed, it's not just I don't know what else do people do together but drink, hmm. <laughs> play video games. Yeah, yeah. I, now that would be interesting. I mean, wh- why that could be way more interesting. I mean, I like this. I like Carver, but it would be interesting to see something like that so interactive be introduced as the occasion. Like, how can we update this? Way back in the day, my friends and I used to drag our computers to the same house to you know have land party. They used to call it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and. uh after a while, my friend just had a pile of computers that we just played in. But um, I remember there was like six of us, and we'd play the game, and then we'd spend like half an hour, 45 minutes between the games just BSing about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's your story. Yeah, that's, that'd be a great little setting for yeah. something. That's a good takeaway. Mm-hmm. The idea of um, forcing characters to talk together, but the occasion being something other than alcohol. Yeah. Like some kind of activity. It may be an activity that's supposed to be fun, but the conversation is serious. Whatever it is, like... Yeah, it's fun to see things clash that way. Uh-huh. What do you guys think of the ending? I really liked it. I put a heart next to it, the last paragraph. It's a winner, yeah. Read it, John. Read it for oh, us. Just the last paragraph? Yeah. I could hear my heart beating. I could hear everyone's heart. I could hear the human noise. I could hear the human noise we sat there making. Not one of us moving, not even when the room went dark. It's not dissimilar to the uh, last story ending, which is red. It has that same, like, kind of feel to it. Yeah, Yeah, this, like, um, sitting in and taking in. Yeah, just being one with humanity. Or just, I don't know, it's like being still. Yeah, I did think it was, uh, for all their talk of, we got to go to dinner. (laughs) And they just fall silent and sit around the table staring at each other, not saying anything. And then the lights go out. Makes you think of a stage going to black. It just, just yeah. seems like a play, doesn't it? A little, yeah, definitely. Little I mean, it could totally be a play for what little um, narration there is. Oh, yeah. This is pure dialogue. It works. He could take all his narration out. Or just make it stage direction. Right. They empty the bottle. Mel gets another one. Yeah, right. And there's a style even to that. Mm-hmm. Sparseness. Do you guys like that? Do you like really sparse stuff? Do you want like more elaborate? I like it. I like it all. So, like some you know, varying degrees. It's cool when people do it innovatively. This guy who wrote LA Confidential and other stuff like that, he has like, he has that but in half. So there's nothing there. And at first you're like, oh wait, what's going on? But then you get it and it's, um, it's really fun if you can pull it off in a way that like speeds it up or speeds it through. Yeah, the, um, the story I've been talking about this whole time is based on a play I was trying to write. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll just turn it to a short story. And um, so it, it was just dialogue. I added a couple of things here and there, but trying to keep it trimmed that way. And uh, But under normal circumstances, I think I like to write more verbosely. Sure, yeah. <laughs> 
I think I like this kind of writing most when it's like juxtaposed with like a kind of like winding, like sweeping sentences and the run ons like after it. Mm -hmm. I like when, because that tells you, I think we were talking about this for the first story we talked about today, the flood tells you to like pay attention to that part. Yeah. The unassumingness is hard to miss. It's hard to, uh, it would be hard to like miss signals that like the story is telling you. Yeah. Cause everything's just like, you know, it's quiet. Yeah. But it is nice to uh, check stuff that, oh, that's like that. But yeah, I like stuff that, um, I can't think of any particular writers offhand, but it is nice to see someone who has like a, like a huge, like just a lot of information in a couple of sentences and then it like gets like real sharpie all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. It's cool to see people change speeds like that. And, uh, just how that propels story. It's probably a million ways you could do it and a million ways no one else has tried either. So. Right. Well, what do you think then that we could copy from this or take away from it? It's very earnest. There's not, there's no, there's irony like John was talking about, but he just kind of gives it to you very plain. So. And then you can probably incorporate that with any style. So I would try to do that. I was going to say, too, when, when we talk about dialogue and, like, I don't use enough of it, anytime I think to use it, I realize I'm only thinking of using it between two characters, but why not get, like, four or five characters on a page? Yeah, it's fun doing that. Yeah. I love doing that. I feel like I don't even have four or five characters in most of my stories, you know? Like, they happen in smaller spaces with, like, a, a smaller cast, or, and this is a cool way to expand everything really quickly and believably some you know how like some people you read a story and they'll introduce a character and then like you don't come back to it you're like what was the point of that character i try to avoid doing that but here's a story where the four characters they feel like they have equal parts or weight it's kind of mel's story but he's not the narrator he dominates the conversation and he's the one that like has the biggest arc I think it's also it's a story of the relationships between everyone. So. Right. Yeah, I realized it was more like I said, by the end, I was coming away with my own interpretation of everything. But when you read that last paragraph and you think about all four of them kind of sitting around, it makes you wonder what each of them is thinking when it's quiet. Like, what are they all drawing from it? It's nice not to be told that. Yeah, because you can you can kind of guess that whatever it is, it's um I don't know they don't they don't all seem convinced of their opinions by the end. It has its own in- intimacy, not knowing what these people think. Yeah, it should be private. Yeah. What What do you think you would copy, John? Uh, I like just the way dialogue can drive it. Like I said, thinking about my own stories that I'm trying to polish, mm-hmm. and uh, it is really fascinating if you really pay attention to notice how dynamics between characters can be so evocative or so well evoked between just through words that they're saying to each other. Right. Um, you don't have to talk about a shared look or talk about uh, someone turning away. You can just, just the words that they, they use to one another, they're, whether or not they're listening to each other, whether or not they're actually responding in the right, quote unquote, right way, answering the question that was asked or right. doing something else. You can, really do a lot with that. Um, I realized, too, that we didn't touch on this, but we have in our groups um, the use of the word said. That's all he uses for dialogue. Yep. Or for the uh, punctuation of it. Yeah, and we talked about that in the teen workshop. Yes. We talked about... uh, Instead of shouting forcefully, we talked about how those adverbs just enforce what ends up being a stronger verb. You can only shout forcefully. You can't shout quietly. Yeah. So that's not stronger. And like we said, like we know exactly how they're saying all of this because the dialogue's strong enough. I I remember the lemonade stands Mm -hmm. thing I did. I was playing with that. I forget the example. I I was having so much fun with that one. I tried to write it as a bad writer. Well, let me try this, John says. What's this like? Well, you know, like deliberately <laughs> use those, but use them in a really weird way. But uh, I think what um, my advice at the teen workshop was is use 
The word said is basically just punctuation. Yeah, don't think too hard about it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, but I just realized that. We didn't even have to talk about that. Yep, that's right. Because this was a strong conversation. And they were still doing things, and they didn't um, do things as they said things. (laughs) It's like, how'd we get started on this subject anyway, Terry said, period. She raised her glass and drank from it, period. Instead of, like Terry said, raising her glass to drink from it. Even that becomes... um, It sounds like soap opera-y for some reason, doesn't it? As if, like, what each she's actually, thing she's yes. doing is, like... That's what we talked about last time. That's what John was saying in the teen workshop, and he was, like, imitating it. He's like, it makes it sound like your characters are constantly, like, putting their hands like, on their hands and, like... Yeah. yeah, they're constantly moving and, like, sweeping their hands and standing up. It's like, no, really, they're just sitting there. Yeah, that's... And it's even, like, raising an eyebrow becomes, like, high drama. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be. It's uh, almost, um, like, Jane Austen, you know. The way that they look at each other, the way they dance is so suggestive of this intimacy that we don't recognize from modern media you can do that same thing with just the smallest most subtle actions mm-hmm. in, in this interspersed within the dialogue sometimes as authors we don't we don't remember that how advanced our brains are when we're reading because yes. like you're in a world it's like i don't need you being like but i i'm probably guilty i'm other of like describing exactly what we're talking about like as he raised his glass because you're in it but yeah, you have to remember that um, our interpretation of language is so um, huge. So yeah, just ease up. Yeah. yeah, very good. This is a good one. Thanks, guys.